0: Good morning, I was gonna say that uh with Terry and Bob, you guys have some of the best of what this church has to offer um, but you can never like out affirm Terry you know <laughs> you give him the mic he's gonna affirm you before you can affirm back so uh well, this morning let's just jump right in and uh, I'll give you a little bit of my odyssey kind of uh, uh with where we're going today, and it's simply kind of coming out of uh, putting the gospel back in front of me and trying to just see what is the core of our faith and get excited about it again. Um, We take grace for granted. We can take the good news and allow it to become old news uh, quickly sometimes. And just lately, with where I've been at, I've had my head down running since about September on a church plant. Uh, and I've been busy, and I've got three little girls, and I kind of shook my head a, a month or so ago and just said, you know what? I want to emotionally get back in touch with why I do what I do. Uh, why am I in the ministry? Why am I a Christian? Uh, why am I planting a church? What What is really driving me? And just wanting to kind of get that in front of me, uh, be enthralled with it again, and just let it sink into me. Uh, and so that took me back uh, to a point where I, I just studied again the roots of evangelicalism, uh, which is something I'd studied a couple of years ago, uh, quite simply because when I got saved at age 22, um, I told the first service, this is kind of how it went, people started asking me, you know, well, what are you? And I'd say, I'm a Christian, and they'd look at me funny, and so pretty soon I learned to say, well, I'm an evangelical, and they'd kind of grunt and nod, hmm, you know, and, and then I learned to, to, to say I'm a conservative evangelical, and then I'd get a smile and, and a slower nod, you know. And, and so I kind of liked that, that I was a part of the club. Uh, but after a while, I, I started going, well, what's an evangelical, you know, and, and I'm taking this name, but what does it mean? And so I'd kind of originally studied evangelicalism just to know, well, is that me? Uh, so I've kind of been going back there recently, and so I want to I wanna get there this morning, and We'll just start by talking about what is evangelicalism, and it really comes from the Greek word uh, euangelion, which means good news or glad tidings, as in the verse uh, Luke 2:10 that we're all familiar with from Christmas time, when the angel says to them, "Do not be afraid; I bring you good news of great joy." And, and those, I love the good news and great joy just bracket those two things. If we could get that at the core of our being, good news and great joy. Wouldn't we, wouldn't we be great Christians? Uh, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so that's the, the word here, euangelion. Um, and when it transliterates into the English, uh, the U or the upsilon uh, comes out as a V. So that's why it turns into evangelist, evangelism, evangelical. And so that's really the, the root of this word. And what it takes its cue from is a familiar passage, uh, Matthew 28. Uh, 18 to 20, where Jesus says, uh, I, have, I have been given all authority on heaven and earth, and so now I'm commanding you to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teach them to obey all the commands that I've been teaching you, and here's the promise, I'll go with you in that endeavor. And so the whole idea here was that there's this good news. Jesus came to herald the coming of the kingdom of God, the inbreaking of God's kingdom on earth. And he preached that, and he taught kingdom ethics. This is, this is how your life should look uh, now that the kingdom is here, or, or this is what you should be about, or this is what you should do because of, of God's uh, coming and, and the kingdom being present. And so this was his program, to announce the coming of the kingdom and to teach people how to live in light of that kingdom ethics. And he basically commissioned his disciples... I'm leaving, you carry on the work. You've seen me do the work, you've helped me do the work, now you go and, and, and uh, perform the work on your own, you carry it on. And so uh, that work is to do with this good news and these glad tidings, that's really what evangelism is, or being evangelistic, is carrying on this work of Christ to take the good news to others. Now the, the word evangelical or evangelicalism, Uh, has become fuzzy lately. Uh, A lot of you have probably seen different phases of evangelicalism in America in your lifetime. Uh, But what began, and we're going to kind of go into this a little bit more later, but what began back at the Great Awakening really became formalized, in some senses institutionalized, uh, in the last 60 years in America. And it's helped to kind of make it confusing, this movement that was afoot, that wasn't formalized, wasn't organized, so to say. It was just a bunch of denominations and a bunch of Christians uh, being about the same purpose together. In the last 60 years, has kind of um, been formalized. In 1942, the National Association of Evangelicals was birthed. Uh, by the way, sorry for the small font. On my computer, it was a different font, and evidently my computer has a font that this computer doesn't. So it, it changed it to some kind of a default fault. So you're going to have a hard time reading. Uh, I apologize for that. Uh, but so in 1942, the, the National Association of Evangelicals, Carl Henry and Billy Graham and all these guys um, starting this, and then on the heels of that, birthing the magazine Christianity Today. And Christianity Today was to be the mouthpiece of an evangelical movement, an ecumenical movement, um, of all these different denominations and churches together that were about evangelism, and this magazine was supposed to be the mouthpiece for that. And you've had many other nonprofit organizations be founded in the last 50 years with figureheads and spokesmen uh, for it. And so what's kind of happened is to call yourself an evangelical becomes a confusing thing. Well, does that mean I follow this person? What if I don't follow this person? Does that mean I'm not an evangelical? Because they are. Uh, what if I'm not associated with this specific group or nonprofit organization? And it's kind of become fuzzy like that. And most scholars will agree that what an evangelical is has really become a confusing thing. Yet we all kind of claim this, if you believe the pollsters, most American Christians would, com- would, uh, would claim to be evangelicals. And so let's try and get a definition that we can at least work with here, and then let's go back and look at the history. But George Marsden, and now George Marsden is recognized as the leading thinker uh, alive today on the topic of American fundamentalism and American evangelicalism. He's a scholar, a historian of those subjects. And so he kind of says uh, tongue-in-cheek um, what, what an evangelical is, because he acknowledges how confusing it is, and then he says tongue-in-cheek. An evangelical is anyone who admires Billy Graham. That's kind of his definition. Uh, That doesn't help us much, so we'll go with a different definition uh, given by Douglas Sweeney, who's another scholar in this area. And he says evangelicalism consists of two things. Number one, beliefs most clearly stated during the Protestant Reformation. Beliefs most clearly stated during the Protestant Reformation. And then second, practices shaped by the so-called revivals of the Great Awakening. Practices shaped by the so-called revivals of the Great Awakening, and so since it begins here with beliefs formed in the Protestant Reformation, let's just kind of journey back to there in our history here. the The Reformation was in 1519. Martin Luther, uh, in Wittenberg, nailing his complaints against the Catholic Church uh, on the the castle door there in Wittenberg, and that begins kind of a break uh, with what had been traditional, which was one. Um, Kind of organized church with a hierarchy, and now all of a sudden you get a breaking movement challenging some of those beliefs, some of those things that were widely held and unchallenged and just accepted universally and so you get the the Reformation beginning there, and the Reformation goes uh, roughly till uh, about fifteen fifty five In in that time, you begin to see a counter-reformation by the Catholic Church, but you also got the Augsburg Confession, which kind of made peace uh, with the Catholic. There wasn't really a war anymore. They just said, let's live at peace. But the beliefs uh, are pretty familiar ones, that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, through uh, Christ alone, that Scripture alone is the authority. And so these are kind of basic Reformation principles. And... That's kind of where this whole journey begins. So you've kind of got a a rough truce in the late 1500s that didn't really work well. And it didn't work well because you've got a lot of egos involved, a lot of pride involved. The Catholic Church is not wanting to see itself get fractured. The Reformation movement itself began to split into different groups. You had the Lutherans in Germany and then the Reformed tradition growing up in Holland and Switzerland and kind of the English reformers over there in, in England, uh, and they didn't agree on, on really, it was uh, uh, the Lord's Supper was kind of the, the big sticking point. But so you kind of have these different groups growing up. And so you had a, a kind of an unhealthy truce, but then what breaks out in the 1600s is called the Thirty Years' War, that these groups just got to a point where they couldn't coexist, one, because of pride, because of differences in beliefs, and largely because of church resources. What do you mean by church resources? Um, Well, they're all state-owned and state-run churches. It's not like what you have in America. So when they made this truce kind of back in the 1500s, the agreement was whoever the, the prince of that area, kind of like the governor, say the governor of Oregon, whatever his belief is, that's what the whole state will be. And so in German areas, you had Lutheran governors. Well, that's a Lutheran area. So your tithes go to the Lutheran churches. Uh, the Lutheran church owns the property, the building, the real estate. And that's the only thing you kind of can be. It's a, it's a state-run deal. And so you have princes. Politics are involved because if you want lands that that's owned by churches and it's kind of in a different state with, with a different religion, there's, you know, there's political issues involved. Can you imagine fighting wars where people die because you're trying to get lands and building and resources and numbers? And, uh, but this is what happened. So you had a real awkward thing going on, 30 years war. You had the Catholics, the Reformers, the Lutherans, uh, and it became a real difficult place to be anything other than those three because those are state-run deals. And so if you're a part of a small sect, like an Anabaptist or what's, what was called a Moravian um, followers of Jan Hus who was a couple hundred years earlier uh, you really got persecuted because you didn't fit at all and so at the end of this 30 years war they've been fighting and what they make their fights about is, is beliefs and interpreting scripture who's right about the Lord's Supper who's right about how church governance should be who's right about this so they're fighting about beliefs uh, on and on and people are dying and you, you can't really stick your head up if you're not a part of that so coming out of that what happens is uh, you've got a new freedom to be what you are. So the Moravians kind of come back on the scene. Uh, German pietism is kind of founded in reaction to all this arguing about doctrine and beliefs. And they said, we're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to live like Christ. We're supposed to have holiness as something that we're, we're focused on. And so you see these different groups growing up. Uh, People are tired of fighting about the the small differences, and they're focused more on living out Christianity. Uh, A quote from C.S. Lewis, um, Lewis says in Mere Christianity, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. and It is doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. We're not just supposed to hold on to right beliefs. We're supposed to be transformed, sanctification, holiness, becoming little Christ. And so in the wake of this war, you see these groups come up that begin to try and focus on that. And they begin to look at each other and say, you know what, we've got core beliefs in common. That's what uh, Sweeney meant by... Um, beliefs most clearly stated during the Protestant Reformation. They all kind of agree on these basic things, what the gospel is, what salvation is. And so they begin to say, why can't we hold that in common and get focused on the mission of the church, which is taking the good news, which is evangelizing the word, let's stop fighting about the beliefs and, and get united on the mission of the church. And so you see this thing begin to happen and then we basically stumble into the the early 1700s, and what comes out of all this is called the Great Awakening. It happened in Europe and in England and in America that, that in droves people began to accept Christ and be changed by it. So here are some of the innovations that led to the Great Awakening, uh, innovations that happened b- right before the Great Awakening that were adopted during the Great Awakening and led to this great revival and outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, the first one, small groups they came about through the, the pietist movement in Central Europe. And so if you wonder how come you have to go to a small group or where these things came from or whose idea it was in the first place, uh, it was the pietists in Europe way back before the Great Awakening because in church it was pretty ritualistic. You go, you do your duty, uh, you go through the motions. That's kind of the corporate ritualistic thing back then. And they began to have these small groups where they really focused on living out the Bible in their, in their day-to-day life, holiness, okay? Uh, And so they would focus on your battles with sin or or where are you struggling or how can we encourage each other? And they would read the scripture one to another. And so small groups came on the scene and really began to change the landscape of what it meant to be a Christian or or get people in touch actually with the scriptures. They translated more Bibles into the vernacular in the uh, late 1600s than anyone had up until that point. And, And that was a big hallmark of the Reformation was to translate the Bible or print the Bible so that people could read it. Uh, the European pietists wanted to get the Bibles in everybody's hands and, and get small groups where people were reading this, the scriptures. Second thing is hymn writing. Okay, Isaac Watts was an old man during the Great Awakening, uh, lived in the early 1700s, late 1600s, uh, and obviously you, you, his name is familiar with hymn writing. And what began to happen was a lot of the churches were just singing the Psalter, uh, singing through the Psalms, or singing wasn't really a part of it at all. And a movement began to be afoot to take uh, what we know about the Scriptures, the doctrine, and to put this into songs that would be memorable, that that would teach people, uh, that people could uh, use as a form of worshiping their God. And so it was was a, a movement afoot to put it into the hymns. Now just think of what it would have been like to live at this time. Uh, religion is really duty-bound, and you go through the motions on the weekend. You begin to start meeting with others and get excited about your own personal relationship with God. And then you begin to sing songs or hymns that are in your own way of talking, your own language, that are relevant, that you get excited about these great truths uh, of of Scripture. And you kind of broaden what you're able to sing, what you're able to do that way. What an amazing... Um, time in church history, I think, it would have been. So, Charles Wesley, uh, who was one of the, the fathers of the Great Awakening, brother to John Wesley, wrote 7,000 sacred poems, it said. 5,500 of those set to music. Great, one of, Probably the greatest hymn writer of all time. Uh, and was taking this relatively new thing and really utilizing it to spread, uh, really, the Great Awakening. Truths about, If you if you look at most of his songs they're very ecumenical. They're about salvation, and they're about the gospel, and they're about God, and they're about Christ, uh, and wonderful hymns. And so, if you are a lover of the hymn, you can basically say, hey, hymns were a part of the foundation of evangelicalism, you know? So, uh, so if you like hymns, that's a new uh, bullet in your gun. Uh, a free approach to preaching. Now, this is another innovation that, that we take for granted. Uh, they... George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers of that time on both continents, had a very uh, extemporaneous style, and he would just expound on the scriptures and then apply them and try to make them relevant to the lives of the people that he was talking to. We're we're pretty familiar with that. Almost every preacher in Bend today is is preaching in a style a lot like what Whitfield's style would have been, and. To these people, though, it was, it was radical and it was new and it was innovative. He's talking to us. He's not just giving us a lecture on, on the Bible or a passage uh, as if he's a theologian. He's actually talking with us and to us. That was new to them. It was amazing. So it was kind of a free approach to preaching as well as taking it outside the churches. In Great Awakening, you had these large outdoor gatherings and meetings where they would talk to thousands of people at one time. And an interesting story is Whitfield, who was friends with the Wesleys, they were a part of kind of a holiness small group when they were at Oxford together. So, I mean, it's amazing to see how God takes close friends and uses that to change the world. I mean, if you've ever heard about the haystack meeting, prayer meeting with missions, a group of guys dive in a haystack because of a lightning storm, and out of that prayer meeting while they're like buried in hay comes the modern missions movement. I mean, it's amazing how God uses a couple close friends like that. But so Whitfield and the Wesleys were close friends and George Whitfield needed to leave and he said, John, why don't you come up and preach at what's going on up here in this field because I've got to go. And Wesley balked at it at first because this is early in the, the Great Awakening because he, he, he was reared in an Anglican environment in, in England there, the Anglican Church is the state church, where you only preach inside the church walls. And you only give the gospel to the congregation that's there. And it was really a stretch for him to go and preach outdoors to anybody that would come. And he later began to realize that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, that, that, and we're going to see later, I mean, the gospel was for all nations. God so loved the whole world. And, and so this was a new thing. The hyper Calvinists, not a good, solid biblical Calvinism, which, which I affirm, uh, but radical Calvinists would say God has already chosen who he's going to save. And so if he's going to save them, they're going to end up in my church, and then they'll hear the gospel. But I'm only going to preach the gospel to those in my church, because I know that, that God's already claimed them because they're here. You know? But I'm not going to go share with somebody that God might not have claimed, because it doesn't apply to them. If God hasn't chosen them, how can I say God loves you? So they just wouldn't. Okay? That's a hyper form of Calvinism. So you've got small groups as an innovation, hymn writing is an innovation. This free approach to preaching is an innovation. Uh, and then you've got this ecumenical spirit where people are tired of fighting about differences and they want to unite. So here's an excerpt from a letter from George Whitfield, uh, May of 1742. So just listen to it in his own words. If the Lord gives us a true Catholic, that's a, a, a universal or a unified spirit, a true Catholic spirit, free from a party sectarian zeal, We shall do well. For I am persuaded, unless we are all content to preach Christ and to keep off from disputable things wherein we differ, God will not bless us long. If we act otherwise, however we may talk of a Catholic spirit, we shall only be bringing people over to our own party and there fetter them. I pray the Lord to keep me from such a spirit. Um, C.S. Lewis espoused some of the same views, and he says at the beginning of his book, Mere Christianity, that Christianity is a long hallway that's got many rooms off to the side. And he basically was saying he always wanted to be in the hallway, which was common to all the rooms. And he said when someone ends up in a room, they stop focusing on what's common to all, and they start arguing with the room across the hall on why their room is the right room, so to speak. Uh, And Whitfield's kind of saying the same thing here. When you end up in a room, you get fettered. And your focus becomes more on the the differences and debating. And now, obviously, there's a time uh, to draw a line. But what he's saying is, in most of these things, we can find unity, and we should. And so there was a true ecumenical spirit coming out of the 30 years war and flowing into the Great Awakening. That was a new thing. And then lastly, there was a renewed sense, or not a renewed, but a new sense of missions. This is before the Great Awakening. The Morovians were were sending off missionaries. Uh, they weren't following a tradition, other than a biblical one. If we go on missions, it's because when I was a little kid, I was taught that missions was this great thing. Or my, you know, there's older Christians in my life that are going to really value me and respect me if I go on missions. Or if we go on missions today, we're going in a tradition of missions. Does that make sense? The Morovians were were creating a missions movement. They were just reading their Bible and being so convicted that God's love is for the whole world that they were just creating a missions movement and sending people around the world. Uh, Ninety years before William Carey ever went to India, um, you've got missionaries going to different places. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And so what would we do? What would we be willing to do? We're so captivated by the gospel message that even if there's no precedent, we'd still do it because, because of this gospel message, because we're evangelicals. I mean, I ask myself that. It's amazing. It's an amazing question. What would we be willing to do even if there's no precedent set? That's really what kind of brought me back to this. Is is again? You know, it's been a long nine months for me in saying who am I and why do I do what I do. And so John three sixteen captures all of these things. This whole evangelical movement. That, that kind of started in the great awakening that not only do we have these beliefs of the Reformation, but we believe also that it's for everyone and that it's our duty to take it to everyone. So if you turn to John 3.16, which most of you know by heart, it's interesting. I, uh, I, have, I like history, so I have books that are a history of like just a year or a history of the U.S. Constitution. I have one that calls itself a biography of the U.S. Constitution. And I've often wondered what a a history of or a biography of John 3.16 would look like. You know, John 3.16 through the years. um, You know, full on with the pictures of football games where the guys are holding up the banner behind the, you know, the field goal uprights. Uh, But what would a history of this passage be? I mean, it would be so interesting, wouldn't it? But here's the text. For God so loved the world... Okay, the whole world, not just a part of it, not just Europe, not just England. God so loved the whole world. That's what inflamed these missionaries with the zeal to go and preach to everyone. God so loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him. I'm just going to assume that everyone's got a shot. Let God decide who's, who's going to get in and who's going to get out. But in my mind, in, in these people's mind, they said, whoever, that's men and women, people of different colors and different ethnicities, uh, rich and poor, whether they're literate, whether they're not literate, whether they were a sinner at one point or whether they've always grown up in the church, that whoever, and so the message was to be taken out into the open air and preached aloud that whoever would respond may have eternal life, not perish and have eternal life. They also realized this wasn't just a game. Christ is not a self-help guru. It's not just about uh, some principles that make your life a little easier or help you manage your money better. That the stakes here was, was for your life and your soul. That without Christ, you remain in sin and you perish. With Christ, you're welcomed into the loving arms of God and you are saved. You're brought into his household, his abode, his dwelling. It says in the Psalms, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. Our homes are a reflection of us, are they not? They're a symbol for us. Our memories are tied up there. Our kids take their first steps there, ride their bikes there. Uh, Our pictures hang on the wall. They're an extension of us. And God's dwelling place is an extension of him. It's wonderful and beautiful as he is. And he is going to take us, because we accept his son, and not just help our life a little bit, but save us eternally and bring us to that home to be with him. And so a lot of us go to Christ like the prodigal son went back to his father. I've ruined my life, and I'm trying to get it back on track. Maybe it'll help with this or that thing. The prodigal came back. Maybe I'll get some money. Maybe I'll be hired back on as a hired hand. That'll solve my problem of, of you know, being poor. Maybe this, maybe that. And it's, it's a, a fix-it mentality. And the father didn't just fix some of the problems. He ran to him and embraced him and says, I want you back. I want to shower my love on you. I want to draw you back into my household or my home, my dwelling place. That's what God wants to do with the world through his son Jesus Christ, is find us, love us, and bring us into his dwelling place. And these Early Christians in our tradition recognized this. It was amazing to them. They were inflamed by it, and they were willing to sell all, leave all, and do all to take this message to other people. And so I kind of was meditating on how amazing it was, small groups and hymns and, and open-air preaching and, and a, a, a true ecumenical or united spirit in the churches and, and all these things are new. What an amazing time it would be to be a Christian, wouldn't it be? Everything feeling so fresh and so new. And then I thought of us. <laughs> I was like, it's not new. It's old. Uh, it's not the good news. It's the old news. I've heard that. I know it. been there, and I've done that. And it's stale, and, and that kind of is where we're at. And so I feel like what, what's going on with us is we're not like an infant that loves the affection and the love of a parent. And we're not like someone later in life uh, who really wants all the love and all the affirmation they can get from their parent and they look forward to that day where you've already gone through that day where you said goodbye to a parent and you wish you could get it back and just that one last time here, I love you or I'm proud of you. And it means so much. In America, we're junior hires. And we all have been a junior hire. And we all know what that's like and it's, mom, stop, stop doing that. You're embarrassing me, mom. You know, don't hug me in front of my friends. You know, dad... You know, why do you have to act so, so silly, you know, when my friends are around? You, you you always are being goofy, and that doesn't work anymore. I'm not, you know, six years old. Um, and you just kind of want to take and push them away. Uh, yeah, I know you love me, but it's not what I want right now. What I want is the affection of my friends or the world or my peer group or that person. And in America, I think we're, we're, we're a church of junior hires. We know God loves us. We take it for granted and we get so caught up in the world and relationships and groups and I'm focused on this and I'm aiming for this. What I do, I do for the purpose of getting affirmation um, or love from something other than God. And maybe that's not you, but I mean, if if you look at, if you stand back and look at Christianity in America, uh, look at our statistics, 75% of Christian high school students that go to a secular university will walk away from the church by the end of their first year. John 3.16 has become tired for them. They're junior hires in their faith. They might know that God loves them and they might have heard it, but they push it away for the world. And so as I just thought about that, I thought, what can we do? What ought we do? Somehow we have to get obsessed with finding a way to make it fresh again, amazing again, that grace would become amazing once again, that this news that God loves you wouldn't be a junior high thing. It would would be where we're at later in life in a mature faith where that's all we want is the love of the Father. And so I thought of the movie Dead Poets Society, and uh, many may not have seen it, but you've got a school teacher trying to challenge junior hires to see the world in a different way. And so one of the first days of class, he has them stand on his desk. You know, I mean, just think of how weird that would be in class to get behind the teacher's desk and see the classroom from the perspective he sees it. That's odd enough, right? Uh, If I brought some of you up here and put you behind this pulpit, you'd, you'd break out in a cold sweat. Never, I, I've never seen it from that perspective, you know. Uh, he puts them behind the desk and has them stand on the desk. So now that they're, you know, eight feet up or whatever it is. And to look at life through a different lens and a different grid. And I somehow thought to myself, somehow we've got to look at this through a different lens and a different grid than what we're used to. It can't become fresh until we see it in a fresh way. I thought if, if I was preaching this sermon to my youth group that I used to have in California, I would have had them take their Bibles and stand on their chairs um, and read John 316. And if that didn't really shake them enough, I probably would have had them stand on a neighbor, you know. Um, they would have liked that, you know, tumbling it. But somehow to, to just get them to, to realize you're not getting it. When you hear this, you think, yeah, yeah, I know that. Um, have you ever tried to talk to someone and they they are doing that, I know yeah, I know what you're saying, routine to you. They don't hear what you're saying. They only hear what they think you're saying. And you get so frustrated because you can see it. It's palpable. And sooner or later, you just yell at them or you holler or you shake them or you slap them. Or You're not hearing me. You're not hearing me. And their eyes are so big because they can't believe you got mad at them that now all of a sudden they listen to you say it again and they hear you. In some ways, the church in America needs that wake-up call. No, no, we're not getting it. We think we know the good news, but it doesn't result in great joy anymore. We've got glad tidings, but we're just kind of droning on like, like machines. Yeah, 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 I know the glad tidings, good news, John 3.16, yeah. I'm a junior hire, and I'm focused on this. And somehow we have to allow it to sink in and aflame our passions once again. I got the title God Saves Sinners from an email our own Michael Long, who's not in this service, sent me. And it's kind of a statement of faith of his. And he concludes it by saying this, and it's worth reading. He says, This is the core of my faith. God saves sinners who by God's grace confess, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. God saves sinners. We're sinners. We don't just need uh, makeup. We don't need self-help principles. We don't just need to get out of a, a, a tough spot that we're in. We need to be saved. And there's only one person who can save us. God is the only one that can save us. The psalmist says, my eyes look to the hills. Where does my help come from? Because that's where the Ark of the Covenant came back. And the help came over the hills. It was God coming He is the one that saves. There is no other Savior but God. God saves sinners. And he loves us, embraces us, wants to take us to his home. And that should cause such joy because it's a gift. The gift of God is heaven. Um, In Romans Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life. Just right there. And so we've got a gift. What can we do? We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 uh, shows us that it's not by works that we can't boast. It's a gift of God. We've got this great gift, so, oh, so great a salvation that we cannot earn or deserve. What's the only thing we can do in response? When you get a great gift that you didn't earn and you didn't deserve, and it's great, what do you do? You appreciate it, and you're filled with joy from it. What drove the great awakening, what has always driven this movement, this loose movement called evangelicalism, where we really go and and try to carry on the work of Jesus, of sharing the news about the kingdom with others, what has always driven it is men and women who have had their lives so utterly affected by the gift of God, by the salvation coming through Christ, that their appreciation and their joy cannot be contained. Amanda's going to sing for us in just a minute. And uh, we were talking beforehand just about she's a singer and I'm a preacher. When we don't get a chance to sing or preach, we get bottled up. When we realize how great our salvation is, and we don't get a chance to express it, we should get bottled up. Women, when you get a great gift, if it's a ring uh, with a diamond on it, Uh, or whatever, a great haircut, that's a gift, I guess. Uh, What do you want to do with it? You want to show it, make it known, exult in that joy. We need to put amazing back into grace. We need to want and desire the love of our Father in a mature way, not take it for granted in a junior high way. We need to look at verses like John 3.16 and not see what we've always seen, but we need to be somehow shocked out of that to see again the amazing message that's at the core of it, that God saves sinners. And we are the chief of sinners in need of salvation. John Newton understood this. His last phrase on his deathbed was this, his dying words, Oh, how great a sinner I am. Oh, how great a Savior he is. Oh, how great a sinner I am in need of salvation, and here's the great news: Oh, how great a Savior he is! Man is going to lead us in amazing grace. Let it be amazing as we sing this. I was just sitting there thinking as Ken was talking about um, the fact that we're a wretch, you know, which is a line in this song, and. Um, I was thinking about the fact that without Christ, there's no relationship with God. There's no communication with him. That's where we stand, without him. Without him, we could sing this song at the top of our lungs and not be heard. Because Christ is that, um, he's that connection to the Lord. And um, with him, we can sing it in a very low, quiet whisper, and God will hear it. And so I just encourage you guys, I know we've sung this a million times, but just sing it, remembering that, um, that he's hearing your voice and your praises this morning. shed line do I pull back out the the grace, the hour I first believed, no less days to sing God's praise we have something worth singing about today and tomorrow and the rest of our eternal lives may the good news be glad tidings, may your heart find a true home in the love of God may that cause great joy that wants to be known, that wants to be shared, that wants to be let loose. And may that drive, not duty, but your deep satisfaction and passion and joy. May that drive your desire to share the good news with your neighbor, with those at work, with those in your family, with those across the world. May we be evangelicals. Amen. See you next week.